0: want to have you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. Uh, John chapter 20 for our time of study uh, in the Word this morning. And for those of you that may be visiting with us uh, this morning, I hope you'll indulge me for uh, just a moment to share a little bit um, just to our our, our church family, uh, but you are more than welcome to listen in. Uh, but many of Uh, You and our church family know Gary and Barbara Barfoot, uh, who have been beloved members of our church for the last uh, several years, just a delightful couple. Uh, They celebrated their 61st 61st wedding anniversary last year and have just been a, a terrific blessing to so many of us in the Cornerstone family. Uh, Gary's health has been failing in uh, recent weeks and months, and we receive word uh, that yesterday at five in the morning, Gary passed away. We encourage you to be praying for uh, the members of the Barfoot family, uh, for Barbara and her uh, family who are grieving right now. Uh, But I also know that the family uh, would want you to be rejoicing together with them in the certain knowledge that Gary Barfoot is alive and rejoicing in the presence of Jesus because he believed in Jesus Christ for salvation. Barbara and her family have been very grateful uh, for the ways that many in the church have cared for them, uh, in recent weeks and months, they've expressed that uh, to me, uh, and I know that they would very much appreciate your continued support and your uh, prayers. Gary uh, was 10 foot tall, uh, in my view. Uh, was a giant of a man with a very tender heart, a gracious disposition, uh, and he was an avid learner uh, all the way to the very end of his life. Over the last several uh, months here at Cornerstone, we have been doing a series through the book of Revelation, and last week we finished chapter 12, so we are just past the midpoint of our study through the book of Revelation, and we'll be resuming that study uh, next Sunday. Um, But Gary had told me some time ago, around when we started the series, that I had to make it all the way through the book of Revelation before he died because he wanted to understand the book and know how the story ends uh, before he uh, passed away. I told him, if you're going to put that kind of pressure on me, I'm going to go real, real slow <laughs> through the book of Revelation just to keep him around longer. But I'm grateful to say that I was able to visit with him on Monday of, of this week and read to him the final two chapters of the book of Revelation. So yeah, we jumped ahead and we cheated a little bit, uh, but we did get to finish the book of Revelation before the Lord took him home. Uh, Gary got to hear how the story ends, and he right now has a far better of the book of uh, understanding of the book of Revelation than any of us do. Right? One of the passages that Gary and I read on Monday was Revelation twenty one four, where we're told about the coming of the the new heaven and the new earth, and where it says that God will be really good to his people for all of eternity. And in Revelation twenty-one four, it says that He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And this precious reality is true because of the central fact of the Christian faith that Jesus Christ entered human history 2,000 years ago and lived a perfectly righteous life and then died on the cross for our sins, and then on the third day, he was raised Because Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, we know that Gary Barfoot is in heaven right now with the Lord Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we can grieve the loss of a dear brother with hope. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we know that God has wiped away every tear from Gary's eyes, and he will one day do the same for us, such that we will never mourn, Or cry ever again. All of that being true, my wife and I, and many others, cried yesterday upon receiving this news. And the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is especially appropriate for all who weep for any reason. The title of my message this morning is A Confused mourner comes to faith. A confused mourner comes to faith, and we'll be looking at John chapter 20 verses 1 through 18. In this passage, we actually find four references to weeping. A woman is going to come to the tomb of Jesus on the day of his resurrection, and not knowing that he has been raised, she will weep. Twice she will be asked the question, why are you weeping? And twice she will explain why she is weeping. Jesus will even be standing right in front of her, but she will not know that it is Jesus. But then Jesus will speak a single word, just one word that brings an end to her weeping And fills her heart with unimaginable joy. The woman I'm talking about is Mary Magdalene, who looms as a fascinating figure in the gospel accounts. We learn in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, that Mary Magdalene had once been possessed by seven demons. Imagine that. This woman knew the cruel torments of evil like few of us can. Imagine. And yet, in Mark chapter 16, verse 9, we learn that Jesus had cast those demons out of her. Imagine the power of Jesus to do this. So, we're not surprised to learn in the gospel accounts that Mary Magdalene became an intensely devoted follower of Jesus after he delivered her. In fact, we know from Matthew's account in Matthew 27 that Mary Magdalene was among those who traveled with Jesus on his final trip to Jerusalem. She was on the scene watching him die. And she was one of the women who also saw him being buried in the tomb before the sun went down on the day of his death. And now it is Sunday morning... Jesus has been resurrected, but Mary does not know this. She is still grieving the death of Jesus, and her only consolation is to come to the tomb of Jesus on this Sunday morning, and that's where our story picks up today. The way we'll break down our study of this passage is we'll observe seven developments in the story of how Mary Magdalene came to believe in the truth of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Seven developments in this amazing story of how Mary Magdalene came to believe in the truth of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And the first of these is that Mary sees an open tomb and misinterprets its meaning. Mary sees an open tomb and misinterprets its meaning. Observe what the text says beginning in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Upon seeing the stone removed from the opening to the tomb, she immediately arrives at an interpretation of what she is seeing. And we learn what her interpretation is in verse 2. In verse 2, John says, So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and that's John, who's writing this gospel, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. That's her interpretation of what she saw with the stone rolled away from the opening of the tomb. From her statement here, we can piece together three elements of her interpretation of this open tomb. Number one, Jesus' enemies have taken Jesus' body out of the tomb. Number two, they have laid his body in another place. And number three, Jesus is still dead and his corpse is lying somewhere other than in this tomb. Well, how do Peter and John respond to Mary's message? This brings us to the second development in the story of how Mary Magdalene came to believe in the truth of Christ's resurrection. Number two, Mary's message prompts Peter and John to visit the tomb. Mary's message prompts Peter and John to visit the tomb. Observe what John says in verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple went forth And they were going to the tomb. What was their manner of travel? In verse 4, John says, The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Apparently, the two of them were initially running together, but eventually, John outpaced Peter and arrived at the tomb first. And notice John's double emphasis here. He's careful to say that he ran ahead faster than Peter. And in case you missed that, he then says, and he came to the tomb first. Peter might not have appreciated his inferior running skills being highlighted here. But John, honestly, is not gloating. This is an eyewitness account. John is simply telling the story as he remembered it. He got to the tomb first. Then observe what John does once he arrives at the tomb, verse 5. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. So John is looking in, and Peter, or as he's looking in, Peter arrives, and Peter obviously might have been the slower runner between the two of them, but what he lacked in running skills he made up for in boldness verse 6 the text says and so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there it's not enough for peter to arrive at the tomb and look in he wants to examine things closely and do some detective work And as he enters the tomb, he notices that what he sees does not fit with what Mary had told him and John. For starters, we're told here in verse 6 that Peter saw the linen wrappings lying there. In all likelihood, what Peter is seeing is the linen wrappings as they had been wrapped around the body of Jesus, but now deflated ...in their pattern because there was no body inside of them anymore. It would have appeared to Peter as if Jesus' body had passed right out of the linen wrappings. So that's unusual. Peter notices something else that's odd. The text says in verse 7, "...and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself." The cloth that would have covered Jesus' face was neatly rolled up and carefully put in a place by itself. However, this scene appeared to Peter, this is an orderly scene, not one of wild confusion that you would expect with a theft. And this would clearly convince uh, any honest observer that something unusual has happened. It's humanly impossible to remove a body from linen wrappings and leave the wrappings undisturbed. And thieves would have never taken the time to roll up a face cloth so neatly after removing it from Jesus' head. So this is highly unusual. At this point, keep in mind Peter's the only one in the tomb at this point. Uh, But now John gets up his courage to enter the tomb. The text says in verse 8, So the other disciple, that's John, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. John is believing in his heart that Jesus was raised from the dead based on what he sees, an empty tomb. With linen wrapping still lying there and a face cloth rolled up by itself, John believes that Jesus is raised. And John, by the way, is not bragging about himself and saying that he's believing at this point. In fact, John anticipates us asking the question, John, why are you only now believing? Why didn't you believe prior to this given the fact that Jesus repeatedly promised that he would rise from the dead on the third day according to the teaching of the Old Testament Scriptures. And why, John, are you the only one believing? What about Peter? Why isn't he believing right now? Well, John addresses these questions in verse 9 by making a humble admission. He says, For as yet they speaking of Peter and John, did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Guys, this is John, the apostle, being humble here, and he's a bit ashamed as he writes verse 9. Speaking of himself in verse 8, he tells us that he saw and believed. Had he understood the Old Testament Scriptures, he would have believed even sooner without needing to see what he is seeing right now. Verse 10 tells us what Peter and John did next. The text says, So the disciples, Peter and John, went away again to their own homes, with John believing and Peter not yet believing that Christ has been raised. Based on the gospel of Luke We're told in Luke 24, verse 12, that Peter went away wondering to himself what had happened. So evidently, Peter still doesn't know what happened as he walks home from the tomb, but John does. So it turns out that John was not merely a faster runner than Peter. He was also faster in coming to faith than Peter was. At this point, the camera comes back to Mary Magdalene. After talking to Peter and John, she evidently began making her way back to the tomb, but at a slower pace than Peter and John. This leads us to the next development in the story of how Mary Magdalene became persuaded of the truth of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Number three, Mary sees angels at the tomb And continues to misinterpret the situation. Mary sees angels at the tomb and continues to misinterpret the situation. In verse 11, the text speaks these words. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. Why is she weeping? Well, she's obviously weeping over Jesus' death. But she's also weeping over the theft of Jesus' body from the tomb. After all, his body was her last connection to Jesus. That's why she's showing up on this Sunday morning, not because she was expecting some resurrection, but because his dead body was her last remaining connection to this one whom she loves so much. But now she's thinking and realizing this body has been taken away, and she doesn't know where it is laid And this adds to the thousand sorrows that she is already grieving. She is also, no doubt, sorrowing over what her own future might look like with Jesus being dead. Guys, think about what her fear must be. If the one, Jesus, who had delivered her from seven evil demons has now himself been overcome by evil. What is to stop the demons from coming back into her? What a scary future she has ahead of her. So she's grieving all of these sorrows. And while she is grieving these sorrows, the text says in verse 11, And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb." And you got to give Mary credit for this. She is weeping, but she's weeping with her eyes wide open. She's willing to open her eyes and look while she wept. She weeps, but she's willing to put herself while weeping in a position for God to show her something, even while she weeps. Her example teaches all of us that it's okay to weep, just make sure that when you weep, you keep your eyes open. Give God a chance, even while you cry, to show you something. That's what Mary is doing here. And observe what she sees as she looks into the tomb. Verse 12 And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? The truth is that Mary has nothing to cry about right now, but she doesn't know this. Actual circumstances warrant great rejoicing. The angels know this, but Mary does not know this. So they ask her, Why are you weeping? And I love the patience of these angels in what they are doing here. These angels could have rebuked Mary. They could have immediately interrupted her weeping and said, there's no reason to weep. Rejoice, He is risen. They could have done that. But they don't do that. Instead, they ask, why are you weeping? This is the heart of God for His people. Before God takes away our tears, He leans into our sorrows and gives us opportunity to open our hearts to Him and to tell Him why we cry. Observe Mary's answer in verse 13. She said to them, they asked her, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. Again, her words indicate that she believes three things, Jesus' body has been taken away, his body has been laid by the thieves somewhere else, and number three, Jesus is still dead. That's her theology at this point. And part of John's intent here is to show how hard it was for the truth of the resurrection to dawn upon Mary. She sees an open tomb and concludes that Jesus' dead body is removed and laid elsewhere. She now sees two angels in the tomb, and the tomb is empty, and she still believes that Jesus' dead body has been removed and laid elsewhere. She clearly is not expecting a resurrection. However, right as Mary is speaking these words to the angels, something happens that directs her attention away from the angels. Perhaps she hears a noise of someone walking behind her, Perhaps the angels look over Mary's shoulder at something behind her. Either way, Mary turns away from the tomb to see what it was. And this brings us to the next development in this story of how Mary Magdalene came to believe in the truth of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Number four, Mary sees Jesus and continues to misunderstand Observe what John says in verse 14. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. So up to this point, Mary has seen a stone rolled away, and she did not believe a resurrection happened. She has seen two angels inside the empty tomb, and she still does not believe a resurrection happened. Happened, And now she is staring right at Jesus himself, and she doesn't even know that it is him. She's staring at the greatest miracle in human history, and she doesn't see the miracle. Jesus engages her. He asks her two questions. He asks her the same question that the angels asked, along with an additional question. In verse 15... The text says, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Notice that Jesus says, Whom are you seeking? Whom? Mary is actually there seeking a corpse, but Jesus here is turning her thoughts in the right direction with this question. Mary was looking for a corpse, but at the bottom of her quest was really a search for a person. At the bottom of all of our searchings is ultimately a search for someone, a search for Jesus. Look at her response, verse 15. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Look at that in verse 15. Supposing him to be the gardener. <laughs> this is so crazy. All of us reading this story, were so excited for Mary. But she doesn't see the miracle that we see. In fact, if you were to interview Mary right at this moment and say, Mary, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? She would have said, no, I just don't see any evidence. You would say, what about the empty tomb with the stone rolled away? She would say, well, that just tells me that someone took the body of Jesus and laid it elsewhere. You would then say, what about the two angels inside the empty tomb? And she would say, yeah, I, I saw them, and I actually asked them if they knew where his body was taken. You would then point to Jesus standing right in front of her and say, Mary, look. Do you believe the resurrection of Jesus now? And Mary would have said, oh, he's just the gardener. Actually, maybe he's the one who took the body and put it elsewhere. I'll ask him and see if he knows where the body is. Maybe you are here this morning and you're looking for evidence. And you say, man, I would believe in Christ, but I just don't see the evidence that he is God and that I should surrender my life to him Actually, you are surrounded by evidence that is screaming at you to be seen, just as was the case with Mary Magdalene. It's just that you are too incredulous to believe the evidence that is staring at you from every direction. I once heard Bill Maher say that if Jesus, if the resurrected Christ, appeared to me in the flesh in person, I would believe. Mary would say, yeah, he did that to me and I mistook him for the gardener. If you have trouble believing, Mary would say to you, I get it. I had trouble myself while standing right in front of the resurrected Christ. That said, Mary's answer to Jesus does reflect an interesting shift in her thinking thinking that Jesus is the gardener, she begins to think that he might have been involved in the removal of Jesus' body from the tomb. She seems relieved at the thought of this possibility. Maybe it wasn't the enemies of Jesus after all who stole his body. Maybe it was this gardener who seems kind enough to ask her why she's crying and to find out whom she is looking for. So, It's almost with a hopeful heart. She says, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. I'll take him off your hands. In Mary's mind right now, the best-case scenario is that this gardener had taken Jesus' body and laid it elsewhere, and that he would tell her where he put Jesus' body so that she could then take the body of Jesus away and give it a proper burial. Mary would have been eternally grateful if somehow this gardener could have produced for her the dead body of Jesus and given it to her. That's the highest that her heart would have hoped for at this moment. She would have been happy enough with a dead Jesus. Here she is standing before Jesus himself, and she's making requests of him, hoping that he might provide her with the corpse of Jesus. And imagine for a moment if Jesus had given her specifically what she was asking for. As one writer says, and I quote, we should all have had cause to weep for all of eternity if what Mary wept for had been given to her, the dead body of her Lord. But Jesus is a Savior who doesn't let himself be limited by the size of our request. You know why? Because he wants to give us something even greater than what we're asking for. God is a God who can do exceedingly, abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And Mary is about to receive something that is infinitely beyond her highest hopes in this moment. How Jesus responds in this moment tells us so much about him. At this point, we know that he wants to reveal himself to Mary, but how should he do that? He could reveal himself to her by saying, I'm Jesus. And none of us would have thought anything odd about that. He could have drawn her attention to the scars in his hands and his feet. But he doesn't reveal himself to her in these ways. Instead, he chooses the most personal way possible to reveal himself to Mary. And this brings us to the next development in this story of how Mary Magdalene came to believe in the truth of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Number five, Jesus reveals himself to Mary by speaking her name. Oh, the genius of his love. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. I love Jesus for many reasons, and one of the reasons I love him so much is because of how he chooses to reveal himself to Mary in this passage. He reveals his identity to her by letting her know that he knows her identity. He reveals himself to this weeping woman through the speaking of her name. He makes himself known to her by revealing to her that she is known to him. Evidently, Jesus had spoken Mary's name on many occasions, a fact that is clearly implied in what happens here. If Jesus had never spoken her name then the sound of her name on his lips would not have awakened in her the realization of who he is. So Jesus reveals himself by stating Mary's name, and there must have been something in the way that Jesus said her name that was so familiar to her that she instantly recognizes who this is. Back in John 10... Jesus is talking about how he is the good shepherd, and he talks about how a good shepherd calls his own sheep by name. He says that in John 10, verse 3. And then in John 10, 27, Jesus says, and my sheep hear my voice. So it's not surprising at all that Jesus calls Mary by her name, and being one of his sheep, It's not surprising that she recognizes his voice immediately. And what a universe of good was contained in Jesus speaking Mary's name. As one writer beautifully says, in hearing Jesus' voice, Mary is hearing the voice that she thought had been stilled in death forever. Here it spoke again with all that intimate quality that distinguished it from all other human voices. One word yet so full of meaning. It was addressed to Mary in her deep grief and instantly turned that grief to joy. It found her with her faith crushed and left her with faith instantly revived. In that one word and its tone was all the love the sympathy, and the helpfulness of Jesus, unquote. One word. That's the power of one word from the lips of Jesus. How does Mary respond? The text tells us that she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. The fact that she's turning yet again indicates that she had turned away from Jesus as she was talking to him. Perhaps she had started to look back at the empty tomb. Either way, when he speaks her name, she instantly knows it is Jesus, and she turns back to him and says, Rabboni, which means teacher. We might hear that. We might hear her call him Rabboni or teacher and think that's kind of a formal title to use in an occasion like this, but we should remember that the relationship of a disciple to their rabbi back in this day was actually closer than the relationship of a child to a parent On top of that, in rabbinical Hebrew, this title, Rabboni, is often used to refer to God himself, who is called Rabbono Shel Olam, which means rabbi of the world. And I say this to emphasize that this is an exalted title, exalted enough for God himself. Mary is calling Jesus Rabboni partly because all that he had taught her as her teacher, all that he had promised of his death and resurrection is now flooding into her consciousness, and she expresses the fullness of all that by calling him teacher or literally my teacher. Why? Because in simply speaking, Mary's name, Jesus is teaching her volumes. He's teaching her that he is alive, that he knows her, that he loves her, that he is with her, that the scriptures are true, and that every promise he had ever spoken to her is true. Never before in history did one single word teach so much truth. It's no wonder she calls him teacher. It's interesting to note that all the other disciples in the gospel accounts are convinced by sight. Mary was not convinced by sight. She saw an open tomb and was unconvinced. She saw angels and was unconvinced. She even saw Jesus standing in front of her and she was unconvinced. But when she heard his voice speaking her name... She was convinced, not by sight, but by sound. She was convinced through the personal voice of love. We're not told this in the text, but what Jesus says next clearly implies this, and that is that as soon as Mary realizes that this is Jesus, she would have run toward Jesus and seized hold Of him. And this is all well and good, but the problem seems to be that Mary is refusing to let him go. And who can blame her? She is not going to lose him again. And this leads us to the next development in the story of how Mary Magdalene went from being a confused mourner into becoming an eager witness of Christ's resurrection. Number six, Jesus instructs Mary to tell the good news to his disciples. So Mary is clinging to Jesus. So observe what Jesus does in verse 17. The text says Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. His point is, Do not cling to me, Mary. If I let you cling to me without end, it would hinder me from my aim to ascend to my Father. Jesus is saying, Mary, there's a moment coming in the near future when I will ascend to my Father and you will not be able to relate to me in a physically clinging way as you are right now. You will still have me and I will totally be there for you but our relationship will not be such that you can physically cling to me. Jesus then speaks to Mary in verse 17 and says, but go, go, go to my brethren, he says. Jesus literally wants Mary to leave him right now and go spread the word about his resurrection. And as you can imagine, this would actually be a hard thing to ask of Mary, right? In clinging to Jesus, Mary is indicating that she would have preferred to stay there for hours, just her and Jesus, Jesus and me, with her clinging to Jesus in a prolonged moment of personal worship. But Jesus is literally telling her to walk away from him and go tell others about his resurrection D.A. Carson, the commentator, says that Jesus is basically saying, and I quote, Mary, this is a time for sharing the good news, not for clutching me as if I were some jealously guarded private dream come true. For those of you who are Christians, just remember that Jesus is not your private dream come true, and He doesn't want to be. You have a commission to go and to share the good news about Him with others and invite them to come with you in the enjoyment of relationship with Jesus. As Jesus continues in verse 17, He tells Mary what to say to the disciples. He says, "'Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father.'" And my God and your God. And there's so much beautiful that's happening here. Let's look at just a few things here. Jesus, notice, refers to the disciples as my brethren. This is the exalted Christ, the resurrected Son of God in a resurrected state, about to be ascended to the right hand of the God of the universe. And this exalted one is referring to his disciples as. My brothers, referring to his disciples as my brethren, also conveys amazing grace. The disciples had all abandoned Jesus on the night that he was arrested. Peter even denied him with cursing three times. Yet the resurrected Jesus refers to this stumbling bunch of defeated men as my brothers, What exaltation, what mercy, what grace, what condescension, and how the disciples must have drunk deeply of this affectionate label when they heard it from Mary's lips. When Jesus says, my father and your father and my God and your God, he's emphasizing the mutual privileges that he and his disciples shared together, the disciples absolutely knew, and they will especially know now that he's raised, that Jesus stood an absolutely unique relationship to God the Father, yet Jesus here is wanting to emphasize that the relationship he enjoys with God the Father is something that they share in also, and Jesus is telling Mary all this, and he wants her to go and tell the disciples this as well. He's wanting Mary to go to the disciples and announce the fact of his resurrection and also tell them the fact that this resurrection means a next step, and that is his ascension to heaven so that he might be at the right hand of the Father reigning from that position on high and giving salvation to sinners who Repent of their sins and believe in Him. Well, how does Mary respond? This brings us to the seventh and final development in the story of how Mary Magdalene went from being a confused mourner to an eager witness of Christ's resurrection. Number seven, Mary rightly declares the good news to Jesus' disciples. Observe what John says in verse 18. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So she obeys Jesus. She actually leaves him to do what he had told her to do, which takes tremendous faith on her part, faith that she will never lose him again. Imagine her joy as she runs to give this news to Jesus' disciples. As one writer says, the fear, the grief, the tears, all gone. Radiant with superlative joy, she sails like a vessel laden with precious freight into the place where the disciples are gathered. And when Mary gets to the disciples, she tells them everything about how she had seen Jesus, about how he had called them brothers, and about what he had said about his coming ascension. And this time she got the message right, reflecting the fact that her transformation is now complete. Jesus has transformed Mary from being a confused mourner into a confident and believing accurate messenger of the truth of his resurrection. And Jesus can do the same thing in your life as well. We'll stop the narrative here, but you're welcome later today to read on. Let's just take a few minutes to ponder some of the meaning of what we see in this passage. First of all, Uh, I have to make this point. The fact that Mary Magdalene is the first eyewitness and messenger of the resurrection of Jesus is in and of itself very strong evidence that this story is not written by man. Back in this day, no one in their right minds would have made up a story in this way. In Jewish and Roman legal practice of this day, A woman's testimony did not carry the weight of men. It's just the way it was. Yet Jesus chooses a woman to be the first eyewitness of his resurrection from the dead. And of all women, he chooses a woman that was once possessed by seven demons. A woman who was once thought of, no doubt, as crazy. If you are living in the first century and you're wanting the world to believe your story, you would never make up a story like this. There's only one reason that John tells the story in this way, and that's because this is the way it happened, and because this is the kind of Savior that we have, a Savior who rises from the dead and who reveals himself to broken people and who uses broken and once discredited people to share with others the good news about him. Imagine what Jesus could do with you, despite all of your past and even present brokenness, if you were to believe in him as your Lord and Savior and let him have his way with you. Mary Magdalene was as broken and hopeless as any woman has ever been. Ravaged and tormented and possessed by seven demons, yet she was rescued from those seven demons by the voice of Jesus. And here she is being rescued from her sorrow by this same voice. And here she is being exalted to the incredible honor of witnessing the resurrected Christ and being made the first messenger. ...of his resurrection to the men who would later lead the church. How far this one woman has come, right? And how far Jesus has brought her. Is there a savior like this in any other religion? A savior who treats women with such honor? A savior who rescues the hopeless cases? Exalts them to such heights... And uses them to be messengers for him. Imagine what this Savior could do for you. If you're here today and you have never believed in Jesus Christ and experienced salvation through him, I want to announce to you today that Jesus has power to save you, to deliver you. Whatever sins you have committed, Whatever your demons are, Jesus can deliver you just as he did Mary Magdalene. If you will come to him and repent of your sins and side with him against your sins and call upon his name as your Lord and Savior. Jesus died on the cross And took upon himself the full fury of evil. He bore the wrath of God in his body while on the cross. He let himself be killed, dying for your sins. And then three days later, he came back from the dead showing that he's more powerful than evil, more powerful than death itself. And if you're going to believe in a savior, don't you want to believe in a savior who's stronger than evil and who's stronger than death? In my opinion, anyone that would offer themselves as a Savior who's not stronger than all evil and stronger than death itself is not even worthy of the title Savior. But Jesus is stronger than sin. He's stronger than demons. He is stronger than death itself. He died and He was raised so that if... We believe in him. We experience the forgiveness of our sins, and we can be rescued from the chains that bind us. And then after delivering us, Jesus will continue to pursue us and show himself to be a friend to us, unlike any other friend, just like he is to Mary here. Jesus will call you by name. He will take an interest in your tears before he takes them away from you. And he will relate himself personally to you as your dearest friend and Lord. And you will learn over time to recognize his voice when he speaks to you through the Bible. And he will use you to be a messenger of his truth to others. In our story today, Mary Magdalene was looking for a corpse... But she found Jesus, or more accurately, Jesus found her. And if you're here today, and I assume you are because you're sitting here, and you are looking for something, I don't know what it is that you may be looking for. Maybe peace, happiness, freedom from guilt, Maybe you're looking for security or comfort or freedom, or maybe you're looking for love. What God wants to give you is Jesus, and in Jesus is all of those things for time and for eternity. Jesus stands before you today, just as he did Mary Magdalene 2,000 years ago don't mistake him for someone else. If you hear him calling your name, turn to him and believe in him. And trust in him as your Lord and Savior. In John 10:3, Jesus tells us that a good shepherd calls his own sheep by name. And he then says, "My sheep hear my voice." And I know them and they follow me. Is Jesus speaking your name today? Is he calling your name? If he is, respond to him today. Do not delay. Say to Jesus, I hear your voice. And believe in him and become his follower today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are a most remarkable savior. You are infinite in your power. You are infinite in your love. And when we read this passage and the other accounts that we find in the other gospels and even other passages in the gospel of John and see the different ways that you manifested yourself After your resurrection to your various disciples, we stand in awe of the sheer genius of your love. Your wisdom is infinite, and you know exactly what I most need in a Savior. And you always know how to perfectly relate to me in any given moment to advance me in my faith and in my journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you for the Savior that you are to those of us who have believed in you. I pray, Lord, that if there are any gathered in this parking lot this morning whose hearts have been touched by your word and by the presentation of Jesus in this passage And if they hear You speaking their name and calling them to Yourself, I pray that You would, with that calling of their name, give them the grace to come and to believe and to be saved, even right now where they are seated. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins. And thank you for taking your life up again that you might ever live to save us to the uttermost, those of us who call upon you by faith. We worship you and praise you this morning. We utter this prayer in your name, Lord Jesus, and all God's people said.